Before we go to our sermon this morning, I do want to take just a moment and, and mention our app that uh, we have now for our church. I know Pastor Aaron has been talking about the app for a, a few weeks, and he is the expert on it. If you need to know details about how to use it, talk to Pastor Aaron. He will explain it to you. But I do think this will be a really helpful uh, item for us to be able to communicate more effectively with one another. Uh, beginning January, we will no longer use Facebook group for that. This app allows us to have more communication with each other without all kinds of advertisements that we don't want. One of the things that I do want to mention, though, with the app is that there is an element in there called discipleship materials. Uh, it comes with the app, and there's a number of very useful things in there, uh, very um, materials of different kinds. There's some sermons, there, there's some Bible studies, things that uh, are valuable for us. But I do want to give a little warning to that. It's an all or nothing. We cannot select which materials you will have access to, so use with caution. Pastor Aaron nor I have neither one checked out all of the material. We, what we've looked at is most of it is very good. But uh, again, it's not been curated by us, so use with caution. There, there is one area, though, that I want to give a particular warning around. Uh, one of the things available there is the first season of The Chosen. I want to, to give a caution around that. Um, I, I would suggest view The Chosen with extreme caution if you do it. Media affects a message. There, there's a, a, we can't help it. Whatever media is used to communicate a message affects it. Um, you, you will get a different message from a, a, a book than you will get from Twitter. Media affects the message. Well, God gave his word to us in written form. We have his word in, in that written format. The chosen has taken the written word and, and moved it to a, 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 visual, a visual media. And that visual display of the word affects how you hear it. Um, there, there, there will be a tone that, that's used by the actors. They communicate the words of Scripture. There will be emotions that are added by the actor. There will be a background against which the, the scene is displayed. All of that will affect how you read God's Word going forward. There, there's character development that, that will be given. The, the characters will, will, are given temperaments as, as, as they're developed. Again, that will affect how you read. Once you've seen the, this look on Matthew's face in, in the visual media, when you read Matthew saying something in, in the gospel account, you can't help but put those two together. It affects how you, you approach the, the message. Also, as it goes on, my understanding is that there's plot holes that, that have been filled in to make the, 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 the story flow better in, in a visual media of of, of a TV show. So they, these may not be large changes, but they, they will affect how you read the gospel that God has given us going forward. You, you can't help but view it against the backdrop of any visual media you've consumed. So I, I want to give you words of warning. If, if you choose to watch The Chosen, be aware of the great influence that it has upon you. Uh, the, the best defense is to be aware of the influence that, that's been given. So, so I do want to give that caution to you because it is available there. And, and if you choose to, to view it, view it with, with those words of caution by, by all means. Um, personally, I have not chosen to view it, so I, I can't speak from first hand. I can only speak from what I've seen uh, written about it. So, and the reason is because I, I do know how powerful visual media is. I, I cannot, for a good example that I have worked with myself is reading 
Tolkien. You read the, the, the Lord of the Rings and then you watch the movies and you cannot help but go back and read the Lord of the Rings without thinking of how the movies portrayed the scene. The same thing will happen with the gospel accounts here. Now, that's enough for, of that. Uh, again, the app is a, a wonderful thing. Uh, if you haven't downloaded it, please do so. I was greatly encouraged yesterday. At least three of our ladies, maybe more, were communicating back and forth over the app about Carol Rudd's uh, need for prayer. It's a powerful tool. And, and the fact that people say, we, we can't learn how to use this, another tool, well, go talk to these ladies. They prove otherwise that, that, that all of us can learn how to use it. I'm not saying they're, they're behind uh, the rest of us, but... They, they picked up and they're using it. It's, it's doable. We, we can use it. So if you learned how to use Facebook, you can learn how to use this. We are coming to Psalm 80 this morning. And let me ask, um, what is your life like right now? Are you feeling desperate in any way? Are, are there circumstances that, that you have in your life that, that feel insurmountable? Is there despair working uh, lurking over your life? Do you feel like there's just this dark cloud outside your window and if you happen to open up and look out, it's going to rain on your head? You know, sometimes this is the worst time of year to have that kind of feeling because we're surrounded by Christmas joy, right? Christmas cheer. And we have these plants here. Everything's supposed to be, be happy. And yet maybe your life doesn't feel happy right now. Maybe you feel like you're in a desperate situation. If you're not experiencing desperate situation at the moment, the chances are you have at some point in the past felt desperate. Uh, plus, the fact is, the future probably holds additional times where you will feel desperate. As we've been reminded numerous times in this series through this section of the Psalms, life is hard. Life is hard. It's filled with hard times. Our psalmist today, as we'll see, he knew about times of despair. We're going, as, as you can tell from screen, back to the, our, our series through the third book of the Psalter. We're going to look at one more psalm before we again set aside. We'll, next couple weeks we will look at some passages in Isaiah that are a little more traditional Christmas passages as we come into Christmas time, but this morning we are coming to Psalm 80. Many of the psalms in this section are cries to God to help. Just as, as Brian mentioned, as you come to the end of the Psalter, the Psalms have been arranged with a, a grouping of Psalms of praise. Well, this section of the Psalter are cries for help. They're the cries for help from God during times of despair. The, the Psalm this morning is no different. In, in fact, we can note the, the careful arrangement of the Psalms by, by noticing that Psalm 80 largely picks up where Psalm 79 ends. Uh, I assume by now you've opened your Bibles. You probably have Psalm 80 open. Well, look at the last verse of Psalm 79. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. We have their God pictured as a shepherd. He's overseeing his sheep. Well, our psalm this morning begins with that same image. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel. That's the first line of, of Psalm 80. There's an arrangement here. God is our shepherd. As we look at the psalm this morning, we see that fits in this section of the Psalter, not only because this image of the shepherd continues from 79 into 80, but we also will have another desperate cry for help. We've seen several psalms that have that cry. 
But we're also going to discover that Psalm 80 is a very good psalm to lead into our Christmas season. It's a good psalm for this season because this psalm demonstrates that a desperate need for deliverance generates hope in God's mercy. We don't have real hope for God's mercy until we have a desperate need. A desperate need for deliverance generates God's, or hope in God's mercy. There is a common refrain in our psalm this morning, a refrain that repeats three times in the psalm. So it naturally breaks this psalm into three sections when you have this re repetitive refrain. Each section teaches us about a response that comes when desperate times hit us. Desperate situations prompt responses. In the first three verses, we, we see that desperation prompts appeal. Desperation prompts appeal. Beginning at verse 1 of Psalm 80. O give, hear, o give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power and come to save us. O God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Our psalmist here begins this psalm like so many is, I said in this section here, with a cry to God. The nation, in this case, is in trouble. Based on the names that are mentioned here, we have Joseph, Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh. Those names tell us that there's a particular interest in the northern kingdom. Remember, eventually Israel split between two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. Well, these names point to the northern kingdom, the kingdom we called Israel during that split time, as opposed to the southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kingdom needs the salvation that only the Lord can provide. Most likely, this psalm then is written just before the, the fall of that northern kingdom. Assyria is the empire of the day. They're the mighty nation. And in 722 BC, they conquer the northern kingdom completely. But just prior to that, for a few years, they attacked the northern kingdom over and over. The Septuagint, which is an, an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint even adds a, a, a title here over this psalm that says, A Psalm Concerning the Assyrian. They place this in this time when Assyria is attacking the nation, but the nation hasn't fallen yet. Still, Assyria was the world power of the day. Little tiny Israel did not stand a chance against them. All Israel could do was pay tribute. Assyria would come and attack, and Israel would try to pay them off so they'd leave and go home again. Well, eventually they started running out of money, and it became harder and harder to pay off the Assyrians as they attacked. The times were desperate. The psalmist was desperate. The people are desperate. So, he turns to the good shepherd of Israel. The, the great shepherd, the one who has sufficient power to save. God, here is pictured as, as enthroned above the cherubim. That, that refers to the Ark of the Covenant in the holies of holies that was still in Jerusalem. God's manifestation that he dwelt with his people. Psalmist remembers that God dwelling with his people means that his sovereign presence is there. Even though the northern kingdom is broken with the southern they still recognize themselves as God's chosen people. 
All these four names I mentioned, Joseph, Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, those are all the, the, the names that connect the tribes to Rachel, the, the favored wife of Abraham, or of, jo- of Jacob, rather. The favored wife. They are part of God's people. All they've needed is for God to move on their behalf, to bring that infinite power that God has to bear on the enemy, and they will be saved. The psalmist cries out, Save us! Restore us! They're part of God's people. They have a claim to God's mercy. Verse 3 is that refrain that that we'll read two more times as we work our way through the psalm. It's a refrain that that calls for God to shine his face upon his people. You may even recognize that phrase as you heard it's a familiar expression. We use it often to close services. Now it it comes from a prayer that was given to Aaron in Numbers chapter 6 verse 25 to, to bless the people of Israel. Aaron was the first high priest and he was to use this prayer to bless the people. In Numbers 6, beginning at verse 22, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. In other words, tell Aaron, Here's what you are to say. Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I shall bless them. Using that phrase here in verse 3, cause your face to shine upon them, that's an expression of confidence that the nation of Israel is in this covenant relationship with God. And because of that, they could expect to receive mercy and grace. The desperate condition here that the nation finds themselves in, it leads the psalmist to appeal to God for mercy and salvation. How many times do we find ourselves in a somewhat similar situation where all we can do is plead to God? We certainly don't enjoy desperate times, yet those are typically the times when we find ourselves praying much more fervently. We pray like we've never prayed before because we're desperate. We we turn to God because God alone can help. We don't know what to do. We can't do anything. So we turn to God over and over, appealing to him. I'll I'll be honest. In this past week, when I examined this past week, I did not spend near as much time praying for my family as I did the weeks right after Grace was diagnosed with cancer. I prayed fervently. The weeks right before my children's wedding, I prayed fervently. The weeks right before my grandchildren were born, I prayed fervently. I didn't pray as much this week for my family as I prayed those weeks. Why is that? I didn't sense the same desperation. We tend to look at desperate times as bad times in our lives. Maybe we should look at them as blessings from God instead. Because those are the times that we turn to God. Those are the times that we're prone to turn from our independence and actually appeal to God. So often we operate independently from God during the easy times of lives. We, we act as if he's not really necessary. Now, we would never state that. We're good Christians, right? We, we know that we need God. We, we've been in Sunday school enough where we know, do you need God in your life? The answer is yes, right? And yet we live so often, nonetheless, as if we can handle things on our own. We lose sight of the daily mercies that God is providing for us. 
mercies that, that allow us to live with ease. Frankly, we need the shock of desperation to, to strike us right between the eyes so that we appeal to God. Desperation causes us to call out, Oh God, restore us and cause your face to shine on us and we will be saved. Desperate times remind us that, that we depend on God's infinite power and God's infinite mercy day by day. Desperation prompts appeal. We appeal to God for our salvation when desperation hits us. Moving on to the next section, we see another response. Desperation not only brings appeal, it prompts reflection. Prompts reflection. Verse 4. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears, and you have made them to drink tears in large measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. O God of hosts, restore us, and cause your faith to shine upon us, and we will be saved. I said the Israelites are oppressed here by the Syrians, but our psalmist recognizes that the, the ultimate reason for that is because God was angry. Yes, the Syrians were the ones attacking, but their attacks were because God was angry. Our psalmist has considered their sufferings and everything they're enduring, and upon reflection he concludes, it's because the people have has raised God's wrath. The question wasn't why they were suffering. He could look at the history of the nation. He knew all the idolatry that the northern kingdom had succumbed to, all the sins that were prevalent of the people. So it wasn't a question of why they were suffering. The only question was how long it would continue. Clearly, it would continue until God's anger had expired. Again, we recognize that, don't we? All of us can remember being kids and knowing that mom and dad were angry about something. Usually we didn't have to think too hard why they were angry. A lot of times their anger made it more than abundantly clear what we had done that caused their anger. What we didn't know is how long that anger would continue. So until we knew it was safe again, we tiptoe around real carefully, right? question here is how long will God's anger continue at the northern kingdom? Until that time came, until God's anger was expired, the only thing they could expect is tears as their daily food. God would continue to use all the nations surrounding them that the Assyrians oversaw to punish his people. The judgment for their sins had come. Reflection really is another benefit that, that comes with desperate times. It causes us to step back and, and think about our lives. When, when things are going smoothly, we don't spend a lot of time generally reflecting uh, on whether our actions please God or not. In, in fact, we tend to assume that the good times d prove that God is okay with whatever we're doing. Again, that's the, the history of Israel. The, the nation, they, they simply looked at all the, the prosperity that they were enjoying and says, God's happy with us. Of course, such is often not the case. 
but, but we overlook God's long-suffering. We overlook God's patience, and we misinterpret it, those things as God's blessing. The northern kingdom had gone several hundred years before God brought this here in judgment. Throughout that whole time, the, the people had the law of Moses. They knew what God expected of them. It was available. With a little, little effort, they, they could understand what God has expected. Add to that that over those hundred years, time and again, God sent prophets to warn them over and over that they were going astray. Yet, as I said, they just continued to look at their ease, their, their prosperity, their ease of life as an indication that they were okay regardless of their actions, even though they were deep in sin. Sadly, we are often the same. We have no excuse at all for not knowing what God expects from us. All it takes is a few taps on a screen and we can have access to numerous versions of God's revelation. We don't have to search hard. You know, back when Israel had to, they had to travel to where God's written word was held in the temple in Jerusalem or maybe there were copies at various places, but they'd go somewhere to listen to a copy be read. We just need a few taps on a screen yeah, overall, we are living among the most biblically illiterate generation this nation has ever seen. People know more minute details about sports and movies and pop stars than they know about the Word of God. Now, I, I trust this morning I'm sitting in a room that's above average in this nation when it comes to knowledge about God's Word. But I doubt we are anywhere near as knowledgeable as we should be when we consider how much access we have to God's word. Yet if, if life is going okay, we probably conclude we're doing okay as far as God is concerned. We attend church weekly. Maybe we read our Bibles for a few moments each day. Say a quick prayer over our food when it comes to thank God for it and we conclude that God should rank us among the best of the people in this country, right? The ones who are most pleasing to him. More importantly, we expect that if God ranks us there, he should bless us. And as long as things are going okay, we stick with that thought. We, we spend practically no time examining our, our daily lives in, in assessing whether our lives conform to God's standard of righteousness or not. We're confident that, that we are good enough. It's only when things go bad, when we suddenly find ourselves enduring a desperate time that, that we start to reflect on, on what's gone wrong in our lives because we think tough times must mean something God's wrong, right? This way we're wired. Well, that reflection is not all bad. Bad things do not necessarily happen as a result of sinful actions in each and every case. We know from Scripture that's not the, the case. Just because it's a bad time, that means we've sinned. No, that, all we have to do is read the book of Job to know it's not always that mechanical. Still, that's when we do tend to stop and reflect, is this a result of sin in my life? Because it very well could be. Sometimes bad things happen because we're living righteously in an unrighteous world. 
But sometimes bad things happen because we're living unrighteously and God disciplines us as his children. So we need to assess. That response, that, that we will stop and reflect, that response alone makes desperate times a, a positive experience for us. Not enjoyable one, by no means. There's nothing enjoyable about a hard time, but it's positive. Suppose we do conclude that our suffering is tied to sins we've committed. What should we do then, if that's the case? If we find out, if we determine, yeah, I've been living sinfully and God is bringing consequences into my life. Well, the psalmist gives us a response. He's drawn that conclusion about his nation. He, Israel is suffering here because of their sin. What does he do? He prays here in verse 7, O God of hosts, or O God Almighty, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. What does he do when he, his reflection reveals that sin is present? He prays. He turns to God and cries out for mercy in, in his desperation. We should do likewise. In, in fact, the, the Hebrew word that we have translated here as restore us, it, it could also be translated as cause us to repent. It's, it's a word that simply means to turn. So the idea is cause us to turn around. Cause the situation to turn around. Cause things to, to change direction. So we could translate, oh God of hosts, cause us to repent. And cause your face to shine upon us. We cannot have any restoration in the circumstances in our lives until we have restoration in the relationship between us and God. If sin has ruptured that relationship, we need to repent. Reflection during the time of desperation may well be the means that God brings us to that repentance so that we can have restoration between us and him. God brings hard times along so that we'll turn from our self-sufficiency and, and bow before him in repentance, repenting of our sinful hearts, asking him to once again restore his favor to us by renewing our relationship with him. Another positive response that desperation can bring. Desperation prompts reflection. If our reflection demonstrates sin has caused this desperate situation, then we can call out to God for his mercy. And that brings us to the third and, and really the longest section. Having been prompted to appeal, having been prompted to reflect, thirdly, desperation prompts hope. It prompts hope. When desperation hits, there, there's really two paths that we can take. We, we're we hit a desperate time, we hit this hard straight, so we can follow a path of despair or we can follow a path of hope. Those are the two options before us. The world heads down the path of despair. The believer selects the path of hope. Verse 8 through 19, it, it, as I said, represents the longest section because the, the refrain that we've been looking at, the refrain of for God to restore us, it doesn't come until the last verse here at the very end of the psalm. At the same time, there, there is a natural way in which this section breaks into two parts. Most of our English versions probably reflect that. In, in verses 8 through 13, 
The first part of this section shows us that hope is based on God's past action. Desperation prompts hope, hope initially based on God's past acts. Verse 8. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadows, and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges, so that all who pass that way may pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats its way, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. Last month we looked at Psalm 78. And that psalm re reviewed the, the major events that led to the formation of Israel after God rescued the, the people from their slavery in, in Egypt. That God's exodus from Egypt, that was the greatest display of God's power in the nation's history. So it was held up in Psalm 78 in quite a bit of detail. Well, again, that event's held up here. But the verses that we just read review the exodus as well as the conquest in a more poetic fashion this time. It uses a metaphor of a vine. This is Israel seen as this vine that God carefully planted and, and cared for. It was planted by God. Now, this image of Israel as a vine is not unique to this psalm. We can trace it all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, verse 22, when, when Joseph, again, Joseph pops up here, when, when Joseph's descendants said, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over the wall. It's like the psalmist has read Genesis. And he picks those words for the tribes here of Joseph that he's emphasizing and uses that. It's an extended metaphor again in Isaiah. The first seven verses of Isaiah 5 use the vine metaphor. And Isaiah is written about the same time probably as this psalm. Isaiah writes right around the downfall of, of the northern kingdom, right as Assyria is attacking. It's a familiar metaphor for Israel. The, familiar, the image is familiar, but notice here where the emphasis is placed. You removed a vine. You drove out the nations. You cleared the ground before it. The psalmist is, is hammering here like a drumbeat that the founding of the nation is God's sovereign action. They exist because God planted them. God ensured that they would expand. The, the, the poetic description of the vine expanding is all the way from the northern mountains of Lebanon to the Mediterranean Sea, to the Euphrates River. The, all, in other words, all the land of Canaan that was promised to Abraham has been covered by the nation. Of course, these past acts of God raise the question of why then is God now broken down the defenses of the land and why has he allowed the invaders to sweep in? The enemies of Israel in verse 13 are presented here as a boar an animal that Deuteronomy 14.8 declares unclean. They are not to be in this land. God is allowing unclean enemies of Israel to trample his precious vine. Think about it. The, the desperate situation has prompted the psalmist to ask why. Because the current state of events is, is such a contrast to the care and protection that, that God's shown the nation in the past. Based on, on what God has done, it's impossible for the psalmist to consider that, that God would abandon Israel now. 
really we should be able to follow a similar line of thinking ourselves. When, whenever we face desperate times, we have a history with God. God has shown himself in our lives before. This is not our first time to have an interaction with God. We've experienced God's loving kindness, assuming we're his children. We've experienced his watch care over us, whether we're his children or not. The fact that we're alive shows he's cared for us. When we review everything that God has done for us, the idea that he might abandon us now, that, that's inconceivable. To, to me, it's a little bit like a story I was reminded of this week when I was talking with someone. The, the town I grew up in was about 15 miles from Canada, real close to the Canadian border. And in that area of, of North Dakota, there, there are a lot of small border crossings to Canada. I mean, we're talking small. There's only a few cars a day that would go over these, these roads. Well, the closest one was staffed by a man that, that bowled on the same bowling league as my dad. We were the closest town that had a bowling league nearby. So he would drive down from the border crossing where he stayed and bowl with my dad on the bowling league. As you might expect, if my dad happened to cross the border when he's manning it, it wasn't much of your official border crossing dialogue. It was more of chit-chat about what's going on in life because they knew each other. But one time my dad crossed the border and this man comes out. Sir, what's your name? Where are you going, sir? How long will you be there, sir? It was a very standard border crossing dialogue. Very formal. Well, it was inconceivable to my dad that there'd be an issue between him and this man. They, they got along just fine. It wasn't like he had forgotten who he was or, or was up, upset with him for any reason. So my dad just answered the questions and, and waited till he saw him next week in bowling. So he could ask, what was going on? Found out that the man's regional manager was inside, so he was following all the protocols that day as he was being evaluated. Well, the history that we have with God is so much more significant than the history my dad had with that border crossing man. All we have to do is think about what God has done. And we know that he is for us. God is not against us. Whatever is happening cannot change the basic fact that God is for us. We have his past acts that prove that he is for us. That means there's hope for the future. Desperation prompts hope. Hope based on God's past acts. In the final verses, we also see that the desperation prompts hope based on God's mercy. Just based on God's mercy, the character of God, his mercy. Verse 14, O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine, even the shoot which your right hand has planted, and on the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Psalmist is continuing that vine imagery here as he pleads for God to come and care for his people. That, that word that we have translated in verse 14 is, is take care. It's literally a, a, 
a verb that means to visit, for God to come visit his people. Well, when God visits, they'll find deliverance. God will be moved to act. The, the situation is desperate now. It, it's like the vine is being burned with fire. It's being cut down. Yet all that is needed is for God to look to the care of his people again, and that will change. It will be well. The armies of the foreign nations are attacking Israel. Still, the psalmist understands clearly that this is the result of God's discipline. Verse 16 is, is the rebuke of God's countenance that has brought this about. It's not the power of the nations. It's the fact that God is angry. For that reason, the, the psalmist draws God's attention in verse 17 to the man of your right hand, the, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Both those phrases referred to the Davidic dynasty. The, the man God placed on the throne. God placed David on the throne of Israel. And then he declared that David would have a dynasty that would endure forever. Now the psalmist is calling for God to empower the king. Empower the king so that the nation will stand. Now it was God's mercy that moved him to anoint David to be king in the first place. It was God's mercy that, that moved God to establish the everlasting covenant with David after he had placed David on the throne. Thus, it's God's mercy that gives hope now because it's his mercy that is sustaining the, the throne of David. His mercy is inherent in his character. God cannot change. God's mercy is connected to this throne of David through the covenant God has formed. So even in the current despair, he can appeal to God's mercy. He connects the call on God to show mercy to the king to a pledge on behalf of the people that they will never again turn away from God. Instead, they will call upon God's name, giving God continued worship as they see his mercy displayed over and over. As we come to this point, this is why I said at the beginning, this is a perfect psalm to, to usher us into the Christmas season. Christmas is all about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That promise that God has made that there would be a king on the throne of David forever. Jesus Christ is that son of David. Jesus Christ is the one who sits on the throne forever. He's the one who will be worshipped by the nation of Israel forever because the people will finally turn to God fully. Scripture makes that clear. Furthermore, we look at this psalm and we recognize Jesus is the ultimate display of God's mercy, the ultimate demonstration that God's care for us. This, this psalm is crying out to the shepherd of Israel to, to bring mercy upon them and the good shepherd of Jesus is God's answer. His ultimate answer of mercy. The fact that the Son of God came to earth as the baby Jesus grounds the mercy of God in acts of God from the history. It's happened. It's occurred. Jesus came. Of course, it grounds those acts not only in history, but again in mercy because he came, as I said in my prayer, to die. He died for you and I. Because of sin, we have no natural relationship with God. 
We need have a restoration. We need to be caused to repent. Jesus alone does that. We rightly are the recipients of God's wrath. Our sin means that we deserve eternal wrath, punishment in hell forever. Let's never lose sight of that reality. That's what we deserve. But instead of giving us what we deserve, God offers mercy. He is a God of mercy. He sent his son to die in our place, to pay the price of our sin, to be our substitute. He offers us forgiveness. He offers us salvation. All we have to do is accept that Jesus is who God said he is, the one who died in our place, that we cannot save ourselves. We must depend upon mercy alone. All we need to do is accept Jesus as our King, our Savior. We give our allegiance to him as we ask God to accept his sacrifice for us. Let me ask, have you done that? If not, talk to me. Talk to me after the service. Send me an email. Let me share with you the mercy that is the answer to your most desperate need. Our psalmist ends our psalm here, repeating the refrain one last time, calling on God to restore his people, to show his favor to them. Yet even if the refrain re is repeated, we can see how the psalmist leading the people here, because it's been plural all the way, restore us. We can see how his hope throughout the psalm has swelled. Verse 3 is, O God, restore us. Verse 7 is, O God of hosts, restore us. That, that means the God of strength, the God of might, restore us. Now, as the psalm ends, verse 19 is, O Lord God of hosts, restore us. God is the God of strength. He's the God of might, but he's also the God of a covenant. A covenant relationship. He is bound to his people. Yahweh, the covenant name for God. He will restore. His people will be saved. A moment ago I, I asked, have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? If we have, that means that God is the Lord of hosts for us. We have a covenant relationship with him. We are bound to God by covenant. God chose to bind himself through a covenant relationship to us when we place our faith in Jesus. God is a God who is our covenant God. A covenant that God himself ratified through the blood of his own son. We will be saved. Think about that. We will be saved. He is our covenant God. His favor is upon us. Whatever desperate situation we may find ourselves facing today or tomorrow or whenever, that truth cannot change. He is for us. He is our covenant God. We will be saved. His favor is upon us. Our hope is based in God's mercy. Our hope is based in his past acts. Our hope is based in the cross work of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, any desperate time should generate hope 
in God's mercy. Remember, the overall lesson that we can expect from this psalm is that desperate need for deliverance generates hope in God's mercy. We have no more desperate need than forgiveness for our sins. And we must come to understand that desperate need before we can have hope in God's mercy. A desperate need for deliverance generates hope in God's mercy. There will certainly be situations in our lives that lead to feelings of desperation. Some of you might be experiencing that right now. But our psalm this morning shows that the result of such times for the believer is hope in the mercy of God. Desperation prompts appeal. We call out to God for our salvation. Desperation prompts reflection. We, we examine and, and determine if there's sin that we need to confess so that our relationship with God is renewed. And then desperation prompts hope. Hope based on God's past acts and on God's mercy. Our desperate times should turn us to Jesus Christ, the ultimate display of God's mercy. Christ proves that no matter what may happen, God is for us. This psalm points to Christmas. A desperate need for deliverance generates hope in God's mercy. Father, we do come to you this morning with hearts that seek to be thankful for the desperate times you place in our lives because we do see the wonderful work that you do within us through these times. Father, I do not know what each person here is facing today, but you do. And Father, I pray that you would use whatever situation is being faced at this moment to increase our joy and our hope in the mercy that we've received from God. Father, if there is someone here that needs to know more about Jesus Christ, to, to know more about salvation that is available, I pray that today would be the day that you would draw that person to find out what Christ has done. Father, I pray for the rest of us that you would cause us to swell in our confidence much as we see the, the confidence and the hope swell within our psalmist. May the same happen to us as we think about our God and all that he has done. That begins by thinking about our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.